Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Uh, Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. We also welcome our radio and internet audiences, and we welcome everybody to visit us on our website. Uh, My name is Dr. Patrick O'Reilly, and I'm delighted to introduce today's speaker, Professor Robert Lustig. He is Emeritus Professor of Pediatrics in the Division of Endocrinology and is a member of the Institute for Health Policy Studies at UCSF. He is studying the interplay between the changes in the nutritional environment and defective hormone signaling, in particular the role of fructose and lack of fiber in the genesis of metabolic syndrome. He has been involved in the anti-sugar movement that has taken hold in many countries. He is the author of many articles, uh, including the recent volume, Obesity Before Birth, the previously released popular book, Fact Chance, Beating the Odds Against Sugar, Processed Food, Obesity, and Disease, and the Hacking of the American Mind. So without further ado, please welcome Professor Lustig. Thank you so much, Patrick. So I, I have to apologize right from the start. I have a terrible case of laryngitis. Um, I got that horrible cold that everybody you know, currently has about two weeks ago, and I was flat on my back for five days. And I'm over the cold, but unfortunately, my uh, voice box is not. And I, I do apologize. But you can all understand me okay. Now I'm going to try not to strain. So if you can't hear me, please... You know, um, let me know. But this is the best I'm going to be able to do tonight. I apologize for that. Um, however, I do. I was not about to miss this. I love coming and speaking at the Commonwealth Club, and I'll tell you why. Because when you come to the Commonwealth Club, you exercise the area of the brain we're going to talk about tonight, and that is, shall we say, um, the most important thing you can do as human beings is exercise this one area of the brain because it is the part of your brain that distinguishes you from every other mammal on the planet. So we're going to talk a lot about it and I'm going to save it for the moment in a minute. Okay. So I have here a slide of a children's toy. What do you think? Good idea, bad idea? Bad. Yeah, but it's 4G. (laughs) Not 5G, but 4G. Um, Bad. Why is it bad? Kids emulate us. Why is it bad? I took care of patients at UCSF for 17 years. And the first time a 15-month-old showed up knowing how to use an iPad in my clinic, I thought that was really cool. And then another kid showed up, and then another kid showed up, and I went, you know, something's not right here. This is not so good. You know, the parents used to bring the kids, and the kids would be all over the place, and they'd be disrupting things, and they'd be, you know, playing with the tongue depressors and blowing up the gloves and, you know, causing all sorts of mayhem. And I would have to be talking to the mom, you know, with these kids, you know, basically distracting her. And now they were the ones who were distracted. And I thought to myself, this was back in 2007, 2008. I wonder if this is okay. Because this is clearly new. And it just got worse. And now we have the data to show just what's really going on. And that's what we're going to talk about today. I could have titled this talk this instead. Oops. Hmm. Why is it stuck? There we go. Ah, there we go. There we go. Welcome to the dark side of the force, because it is a force, this thing called technology, is it not? I see my different affiliations. At the bottom, you will notice I am an advisor for a group, nonprofit, called the Center for Humane Technology. And we will end with that at the end uh, to explain what that is and why it's important. Okay. 
So I do have some disclosures. I did write these two books for the general public, one of which is for sale right out there and talks about this issue um, um, with other issues as well. And also I am the chief um, science officer of a nonprofit called Eat Real, which is trying to promote real food in restaurants, hospitals, cafeterias, school districts to try to solve this problem of metabolic syndrome by praising the good. I am also the chief medical officer of a startup called Biolumen Technologies. We will not be talking about this tonight, but we are basically trying to find a bioengineered way to fix the childhood obesity and diabetes epidemic. So those are my disclosures. All right. So you've heard of this thing called technology. Well, technology in and of itself is not good or bad. It's a tool. And tools, depending on who uses them, can be good or bad. So here's an example of technology, presumably for good. And here's the same technology being presumably used for bad. A hammer can hammer nails or skulls, right? GMOs, um, you know, uh, uh, gene editing, you know, these are tools, okay? Ultimately, society decides which are the good uses and which are the bad uses. And I am not here today to tell you that technology is either good or bad. Ultimately, it is your decision. But what I am here to tell you about is that for 50 years, we have decided as a society that technology only seems to be able to do good. And what we have learned in the last couple of years is that, in fact, that's not necessarily the case. So when we're talking about technology, we're talking about these guys here, and you're pretty much familiar with all of them, and some of you are wearing them right now. Okay, we're gonna have a lot to say about Cambridge Analytica later. So the downsides of technology can basically encompass issues of privacy. They can encompass issues of uh, election interference, if you want, of democracy. Um, Tonight, we're mostly going to be talking about the public health aspects of technology and how ultimately this interferes with public health because I'm a doctor, because I'm not a, you know, political scientist, and I'm not a politician, and, you know, but we will ultimately talk about how that public health issue does impact on these other ones. So this is a list of some of the downsides of technology that you may or may not have, you know, spent any time thinking about. Problems with attention, cognition, memory, and learning because of the distractibility, and you'll see why that is in a little bit. Problems with reading and critical thinking, especially in children. These, most of these are for cho- you know, particularly problematic in children, although we see adults with these problems too. Exposure, of course, to unwanted and inappropriate content. Multitasking and interruptions and stress, which are an enormous problem. And you will see how cortisol, the stress hormone, interplays with this problem of inattention in a moment. Stimulation and self-regulation. It's hard to soothe people. Depression and emotional well-being. Technology has been associated with depression. Of course, you know, there's the cause and effect question. Is it that depressed people use technology for social validation? Or is it that the technology itself causes depression? We don't know that specifically yet. Problems with empathy. Turns out college students who carry one of these in their pockets demonstrate 40% less empathy than college students who don't. Whether or not, again, cause and effect, we don't know. Problems of sleep, in part because of the distraction, in part because of the blue light, which activates the midbrain to suppress melatonin, which is necessary for your brain to think the lights are out. Problems of loneliness, distracted driving and pedestrians. My next-door neighbor, Matt Richtel, who's a Pulitzer Prize-winning author, wrote a whole book called The Deadly Reckoning about... Um, a kid, a 19-year-old in Utah who was texting and driving and killed two NASA astrophysicists. And um, now there's a law in Utah called Reggie's Law, 
for Reggie Shaw, the um, uh, young man who did this. Um, and it's a, you know, it's a complicated story. Um, Cyberbullying, which is a huge problem in kids, parental stress of various sorts because of what's happening with the children. And ultimately, we will end with this issue of hacking the mind. That is, getting you to believe something you wouldn't otherwise normally believe, and how that ultimately can influence things like hate speech and election interference. And ultimately, this big thing, this, you know, basically tsunami headed our way called AI and what that means for what we may all end up thinking in the future. Okay. All of these problems utilize three areas of the brain. First one, the reward pathway, the same pathway that cocaine, nicotine, alcohol, heroin, sugar, activate. The contentment pathway, which is the um, happiness pathway, the one that basically says, I'm at peace, you know, I, I, I've got what I want, I don't need any more. Okay? And then finally, the stress, fear, memory pathway, which is a complex pathway, and we're going to spend most of our time on that one. Now, the reward pathway is fueled by this neurotransmitter called dopamine. You've heard of it, right? Dopamine is made in one area of the brain called the ventral tegmental area, and it then propagates to two areas of the brain. The first one is the nucleus accumbens. That is the reward center. That is where your brain transduces the signal of reward. When dopamine is released within that nucleus, the dopamine receptors on the second neuron, interpret that signal as one that is rewarding. It is not just the reward neurotransmitter, it is also the learning neurotransmitter. You learn, this feels good. I want more. So this is an extraordinarily important pathway because it's the pathway that gets you out of bed in the morning. Because if your dopamine system doesn't work, you might as well just stay in bed crawl in a hole and die because there's no point in actually surviving. And this is essential for survival of the species, this pathway. And we can show in animals with knockout, uh, you know, knockout mice where there's defects in the dopamine pathway, um, they basically wither and die because they have no reason to generate any reward. The other part of the brain that's important here that the um, dopamine system signals is this area in the front here called the prefrontal cortex. This is the part of your brain that I was referring to before. You are here right now to exercise your prefrontal cortex. It is the most important part of your brain. It is the part of your brain that makes you human. And I will show you why. Now, in general... The, um, the reward pathway is in reciprocation with the prefrontal cortex. So when reward goes up, the prefrontal cortex slaps it down, mostly. But when it doesn't, then you get into problems. The second part is the contentment or the serotonergic pathway. This is the happiness pathway, the part of your brain that says, this feels good, I don't want or need anymore. You'll notice a different area of the midbrain called the dorsal raphae. Remember for dopamine, it was the ventral tegmental area, different area, different chemical, different set of receptors, different mechanisms of action, totally different. Okay? Pleasure and happiness are not the same. And that's what the book is about. The fact that they're not the same. In fact, many times they function as opposites. And the book explains how and why. In any case, you'll notice that the dorsal raphae sends its serotonergic influences all throughout the brain. Yeah, it sends it to the prefrontal cortex, but it sends it to the entire cerebral cortex, basically as a calming influence. And that's one of the reasons why when you don't have enough serotonin, you are not calm. You are anxious. You are depressed. You are miserable, which is why you take drugs like Prozac or Zoloft, Okay, which are serotonin reuptake inhibitors in an attempt to try to boost the serotonin so that you don't feel like crap. 
All right, everybody got the picture? Two different pathways, two different sets of feelings. And then finally, this last pathway, the stress-fear memory pathway. And there are four parts to this. The amygdala is a walnut-sized part of the brain on either side near the temporal lobes, just buried underneath the temporal lobes. And this is your fear center. This is the part of your brain that goes haywire when you're walking down a dark alley at three in the morning, whether there's someone there or not. Okay? You're just, you know, like scared, right? Like that feeling of impending dread comes from your amygdala. Now, the amygdala is in reciprocation with this other area over here called the hippocampus. The hippocampus is your memory center. This is where you remember when you put your hand down on a hot stove when you were three years old. That's where that is stored. And what's interesting is the amygdala and the hippocampus are in constant crosstalk. And when one is overwhelming the other, you get disease. Okay? There's a reciprocity of signaling between those two. In addition, this area called the prefrontal cortex is also trying to tamp down on the amygdala by basically rationalizing and saying, oh, I've walked down this dark alley many times before and it's not so bad and, you know, I will exit on the other side. That's your prefrontal cortex basically seeing the future in an attempt to try to mitigate the effects of amygdala on your fear. And then finally, the area called the hypothalamus. That's the hormonal control center. And that's the part of your brain that tells your adrenal glands, which sit on top of your kidneys, to release epinephrine and cortisol, the stress hormones. And cortisol plays an important role in how well this prefrontal cortex works. Because basically, when your cortisol goes up, your prefrontal cortex goes to sleep. You go into a state of suspended knowledge and a suspended animation with respect to knowledge and reasoning. Okay? So this is a feedback pathway. When your cortisol goes up, your stress fear memory pathway goes into overdrive. So here is the model of the data that explain these different pathways and how they work together which you sort of need to understand in order to be able to understand what's happening with respect to the downsides of technology. These five things in this black box are the things that have happened to us over the last 50 years. Technology, processed food, sugar, lack of sleep, and drugs. Every single one of those stimulates dopamine release. Every one of those makes your dopamine go up. Now, They're all rewarding in their own ways. However, that reward is relatively short-lived. Most dopamine hits are quick, like an hour, like a good meal. Get it, eat it, experience it, and forget it. The problem is chronic dopamine overstimulation ultimately reduces the number of dopamine receptors, and I will show you that in a moment on another slide. So what happens is you get into a vicious cycle where more dopamine means less receptors. More dopamine ends up finding fewer receptors to bind to, and so the law of diminishing returns sets in. You end up with more um, uh, dopamine for less effect. And ultimately, that is the phenomenon we call tolerance. And I will explain tolerance in a moment. In addition, throw some stress onto the mix, which then puts your prefrontal cortex through that cortisol pathway I mentioned before into suspended animation. When you put those two things together, dopamine and stress, that is the pathway to addiction. On the other side, all of these also lead to all the phenomena associated with metabolic syndrome, which lowers serotonin. Therefore, less happiness, less contentment. And stress reduces the receptor for serotonin. So now you have less neurotransmitter, fewer receptors. Now you're really not getting any effect. And that is the pathway to depression. So addiction and depression are basically two sides of the same coin driven by the same phenomena. Some people will manifest addiction, some people will manifest depression, some people will manifest both. The point is, 
It's the stress that makes all of this run. The prefrontal cortex going to sleep because of the cortisol rise, because of the stress. And the question is, what stresses do you have in your life? How about this one? Okay. So what we're going to answer today are these five questions. Is there such a thing as technology addiction? Because a lot of people say, how can that be addictive? It's a behavior. It's not a drug. So we're going to talk about that. Is it the same as drug addiction? Does it use the same pathways? Is it you know, somehow different because it's a behavior? Does technology lead to depression? Have our minds been hacked? And what data do we have to demonstrate that? And lastly, the question that hopefully brought you in today, are children at more risk? Since it's called the hacking of the American child. And I'm a pediatrician. So this one I know something about. Okay. So the fact that let's start with the last question first. In fact, children are at risk for all psychiatric diseases, greater risk. And you can see here, here's a list of impulse control disorders, substance use disorders, anxiety disorders, mood disorders, schizophrenia. You'll notice children get them all. And they particularly get them at puberty. Puberty is like the time when all hell breaks loose. Now, all hell breaks loose anyway, but it can break loose in a very, you know, bad way as well as in the, quote, good ways. But the fact is, children are more susceptible because their brains are developing. And I will show you that on a slide in a moment. If you look at addiction, you'll notice this huge peak at the time of puberty. This is not by accident. It's because of these changes that are occurring in the brain, because of the hormonal changes that are occurring that lead to brain structural changes as well. You'll notice all of those um, uh, uh, phenomena like illicit drugs and alcoholism are dependent on how much stress children uh, are under. So adverse childhood experiences, so like parental um, child abuse, sex abuse, neglect, etc. The more, the more um, likely you will end up having problems related to drug abuse later on. Not surprising, we know that, but it's, you know, this, it's that pubertal age group when all of this comes out. How about depression? Depression is, again, the other side of addiction. So here are the data on children's hospital admissions over a seven-year period, 2008 to 2015. Those are the first years of the iPhone. Okay? And you'll notice, not a big issue in the pre-pubertal kids, but once you hit puberty, 12 to 14, 15 to 17, the annual increase of visits with, sec, uh, with uh, suicidal ideation or self-harm jumped markedly. And if you look at outpatient visits down here at the bottom, you'll notice that there was a tripling in that same period of time, the time of the advent of the iPhone and the iPad with these 15-month-olds coming in knowing how to use it already. Now, this is particularly worrisome. This is deaths in children ages 10 to 14 in America. And you'll notice the x-axis is the years, and the y-axis is the incidence of different forms of death. And you'll notice that motor vehicle accidents have been halved because of crumple zones and seatbelt use, right? But also because kids aren't in those cars anymore, because where are they? They're at home playing video games, and look at the rate of suicide going up. In fact, suicide is now a more common cause of teenage death than motor vehicle accidents are. That is extraordinarily alarming. But it's not just kids, it's everyone, because U.S. suicide rates are up 30% in the last 20 years. And only half of those had a known mental health problem. Now, you could say, well, that's the opioid crisis, but no, because this takes into account, this, this study took into account um, uh, uh, opioid uh, overdoses. Okay? These were people who wanted to take their own life, not just happened to take an overdose of opioids. 
antidepressant use is up in those same uh, uh, in that same period of time as well. People are unhappy, and I will also tell you that people are voting with their feet. You'll notice that several states have now legalized marijuana. Now, what is marijuana? It's an anti-anxiety agent. That's what it is. It calms you. Causes the munchies too, but it calms you. So what's happened is that in the states where um, uh, marijuana has been legalized, SSRI prescriptions have gone down proportionately and reciprocally. Basically, people are choosing an over-the-counter medication that they can control against the um, uh, you know, uh, prescription medication that they can't control. So basically, it's been a one-for-one one even exchange. So people are anxious. Right? And the question is, why is that? It's not just America. It's everywhere. Because this is World Health Organization data showing that 4.4% of the entire world has now been diagnosed with endogenous depression. That's a lot of people. You know, it used to be about 1%. Now it's 4.4%. That is an 18.5% increase in prevalence in that decade of technology. So here's why. Remember this area that I told you about, the prefrontal cortex? Okay, I like to call it the Jiminy Cricket part of your brain, and I do so in the book, because it's the part of your brain that keeps you from doing stupid things. Okay? It's the damper on your craziest thoughts. It's the damper on your wildest dreams. It's the damper on your biggest nightmares. Okay? It's the part of your brain that says, oh, don't go there. Don't do that. Okay? It's the part of your brain that keeps you in your seat right now. All right? Everybody got it? It's the executive function part of your brain. It's the part of your brain that lets you hold down a job. And what you'll notice is that in man, in humans, it is two-thirds of the entire front of your brain. It's pretty big. Look at the other uh, species. Not so big. That's why... Most species, when you analyze animal behavior, they can't plan for the future. They only deal with what's happening right now, which is basically why they're animals. Okay, that's true for you know, all, all the species below us. We're the only ones who can actually see into the future. So the adult prefrontal cortex has many, many functions, and they're on this slide. So let's start in the upper right here. So it's the part of your brain that can organize thoughts and problem solve. It forms strategies and plans. It inhibits inappropriate behavior. Okay, really important nowadays, okay, especially with this hate speech going on. It lets you consider different streams of information and lets you prioritize them. For it lets you foresee the consequences of your behavior, like seeing the future. It shifts and adjusts behavior when situations change. It modulates intense emotion to bring it back down. Like I said, it will, it will damper your wildest dreams and your worst nightmares. And it, it's important in impulse control. And everyone's got impulsivity nowadays, and you'll see why. And the ability to balance short-term rewards with long-term goals. In other words, delayed gratification, which is something we don't see very much nowadays, do we? Okay? And considering future and making predictions and focusing attention. That is what the prefrontal cortex does. Pretty darn important, if you ask me. So the question is, what is going on in kids? This is a video that demonstrates how the brain myelinates. Now, are you all familiar with the term myelin? It is the fatty sheath that surrounds neurons. It is the way your neurons are protected uh, and allow it to um, uh, send information uh, through the, uh, across the neuron faster. Let me give you an example of um, insulation. Okay? Let's say you had a battery. Okay. Say you had a 240 volt battery sitting here, okay? and I had two wires. Okay? 
The wires themselves are exactly the same copper, exactly the same width, exactly the same length. Right? But one of them is bare, and the other one is insulated. You know, it has a plastic coating on it. You put both wires across the electrodes of that 240-volt battery. Which wire is going to short out first? The bare one or the insulated one? The bare one. Right, the bare one. The insulated one, because it's insulated, it provides a greater resistance which decreases the amperage, which means that the voltage won't fry the neuron. Everybody got that? Ohm's law, it's called. Well, it works in your brain too. So bare neurons, unmyelinated neurons, are more susceptible to damage. Well, it turns out that that prefrontal cortex, that front of your brain, that front two-thirds, like I talked about, is the last part of your brain to myelinate. And it doesn't do so, it doesn't complete until you're 25 years old. Starts at puberty and goes to 25. The rest of your brain's myelinated, but your prefrontal cortex, this most important part of your brain for being able to see into the future, is still at risk from chronic overstimulation. Everybody got that? Now, chronic overstimulation causes death of neurons. Neurons like to be stimulated. That's why they have receptors in the first place. But neurons like to be tickled, not bludgeoned. Chronic overstimulation of any neuron will result in neuronal cell death. And I know this because as a pediatrician, I have to take care of a lot of kids who end up in the neurointensive care unit over at UCSF with status epileptic as chronic seizure disorders that won't, go, that won't stop. And we have to put these kids into comas specifically to get a handle on their seizure focus because the longer they seize, the more brain they damage. Everybody got the picture? So chronic damage of your prefrontal cortex is a really bad idea. Now, I'm going to show you a commercial that you all remember from your childhood. Okay, you will remember this and you will laugh and you will smile and then we will talk about it. Okay, last time. This is drugs. This is your brain on drugs. Any questions? So my question is, was that true? Made a great PSA. Was it true? Not exactly. Half true. Half true. Turns out, not all drugs fry neurons. Depends on whether those ner- the, the stimulus is excitatory or inhibitory. So a lot of the neurons in your brain are inhibitory neurons. They suppress firing in the next neuron. Some are excitatory. So, for instance, benzodiazepines like Valium and Halcyon and Ambien They don't fry neurons. Psychedelics, of all things, don't fry neurons. Okay, remember LSD from the 60s? Well, Nixon put uh, an end to that in 1970 with the DEA Enforcement Act and made all psychedelics Schedule 1, meaning they're banned. Okay, did everybody end up in the emergency room? No. In fact, they weren't even addicted. People walked away from it and said, well, you know, I mean, they found other ways like, you know, licking Colorado river toads, but, you know, they, but they, they, we didn't have like a meltdown when they did that because they weren't addictive and they didn't fry neurons. In fact, these psychedelics are actually making a resurgence now. And if you read Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind, you know, it's a whole book about psychedelics and it happens to be chapter eight of my book too. Okay. I didn't steal it from him. He didn't steal it from me. It's okay. Um, And Michael's a friend, so it's okay. The fact is only excitatory neurotransmitters cause neuronal cell death. So cocaine causes dopamine to increase. 
that will kill neurons. Ecstasy will kill neurons. Methamphetamine, PCP, those are excitatory neurotransmitters. Those will kill neurons. No argument. And chronic overstimulation of any neuron will lead to neuronal cell death. And unmyelinated neurons like those in children are more likely to die from that chronic excitation. So adolescents are at particular risk from overstimulation by dopamine. So far, so good. So I've explained a couple of things, you know, of our five questions. I've now hopefully answered two of them. So drug abuse does lead to problems because it changes myelinogenesis and development of that prefrontal cortex, that limbic system. And the more that changes in puberty, the less likely that that individual will be able to employ that prefrontal cortex to dampen out problematic emotions and behaviors later on. So yes, children are at greater risk. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now, back to our program. Now, we can find signs of decreased myelinization in the brain. In patients, for instance, with depression, you can see it here. Okay, And there's the nucleus accumbens in red, and that's what the MRI data show. So this is a real thing, and you can see it in people. So here's the key. Dopamine is an excitatory neuron, a neurotransmitter. It can kill neurons. Now, like I said, neurons like to be excited. That's why they have receptors. But they like to be tickled, not bludgeoned. So they have a fail-safe. They have a plan B. They have a self-defense mechanism. Because they don't want to die. What do they do? They downregulate the receptor. So it's less likelihood that any given dopamine molecule will be able to find the receptor to bind to. So therefore, less chance that neuron will fire. That's called tolerance. So how does it work in humans? You get a hit, you get a rush, receptors go down. Next time you need a bigger hit to get the same rush, Receptors go down, and then you need a bigger hit, and a bigger hit, and a bigger hit, until finally, huge hit to get nothing. That's called tolerance. And then when the neurons actually do start to die, that's called addiction. Everybody got that? Super important you understand that point. So, can we find evidence of that in human brains? And the answer is, oh yeah, for sure. So here's a control brain, and where you see red, those are dopamine receptors. Red means high density of dopamine receptors. So here's a control brain, and here's a cocaine brain right next door. And you can see, downregulated. Well, guess what? True in obesity, too. So here's a control brain, and here's an obese brain. Same phenomenon. Basically, anything that causes dopamine to be released will show this same phenomenon of tolerance. So you can pick your drug, cocaine, amphetamine, nicotine, alcohol, sugar, they all do it. And in fact, people, my, my work's been on sugar primarily, okay, because it's the thing kids are exposed to and exposed to earlier and earlier, like how about in the womb, because it turns out sugar does cross the placenta, contrary to popular belief. We now have the data to show that indeed sugar does cross the placenta. So mom, pregnant mom drinking a Coke ain't such a good idea. Think about it. Not such a good idea. And it turns out even National Geographic got it. Why we can't resist it? Because it is addictive. Because it drives dopamine release. And everything that drives dopamine release in the extreme is addictive. So here we have our model again. These five things all cause CNS malfunction at some level. 
And these are the five things that have occurred in the last 50 years. And kids are, shall we say, in the crosshairs more than anybody else. Because they get all of those. All right. Now this is my favorite Dilbert of all time. I'm going to read it to you real quick. The MRI shows that your brain has been hijacked by dopamine pirates. You are now under the full control of social media corporations, gambling casinos, and big pharma. Are you writing me a prescription? No, I'm buying stock in those companies. Okay. I could stop the talk right now because that's what's going on. Because hedonic substances and behaviors are hedonic. They sell. We even have a way of describing that economic behavior. It's called price elasticity. Have you ever heard of that term, price elasticity? So what price elasticity measures is if the price of an item goes up 1%, how much does consumption go down to meet that? Now, if it goes up by 1%, it ought to, the consumption ought to go down by 1%. But nothing does that. But, you know, things that go down a lot are price elastic, meaning they're responsive to the price. The things that are most price inelastic are the things that are the most addictive, like cigarettes, like alcohol. You know, you'll pay the syntax and still get it. Right? $12 a pack for cigarettes. Like, who does that? Well, someone who's addicted will. Right? How about sugar? Turns out, the three most price inelastic items are fast food, soft drinks, and juice. Because they are hedonic. Because the sugar stimulates dopamine. So we have the data, both behavioral, neurobiological, imaging, and economic, to demonstrate that these things are addictive. So the question is, what about technology? Technology is not a substance. Technology is a behavior. Do behaviors meet the criteria for addiction? So this so gambling disorder was, in 2013, certified by the American Psychiatric Association as being an addiction, gambling addiction. We're going to talk about why in a minute. If you look at the MRIs of people with, say, gaming disorder. So, like in South Korea, people die because they play video games and forget to sleep. This is a huge problem in South Korea. It's a problem here too, but South Korea is like famous for it. Okay? And if you look at the brain, same areas, same um, uh, phenomenon, same problem with the prefrontal cortex, same problem with the nucleus accumbens. Basically, it's a, it, 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 it mimics the problem of cocaine almost identically. This is also, and you can see here's, here's the pre, here, that's the nucleus accumbens right there in yellow. Okay? And you can see the dopamine receptors going down in this. And guess what? Same with Facebook. Now, some of you may have seen this article. It came out last week in the New York Times. Okay, it says, do not disturb how I ditched my phone and unbroke my brain. Okay? Pretty good article, except I totally disagree with it. And here's why. This is from the article. I, uh, I took it straight from uh, the website, uh, from the Times website. It says, I don't love referring to what we have as an addiction. Unlike alcohol or opioids, Phones aren't an addictive substance so much as a species-level environmental shock. Is that true? First of all, the guy who wrote it is not a scientist. The guy who wrote it is a journalist. He's a good journalist, but, you know, he didn't ask me. Okay? But this is what he said. So the question is, did he get it right? Is it true? Well, so... In 1993, the American Psychiatric Association, by the way, they're the umpires. They call the balls and strikes on this. They decide what's addictive and what's not in America. The WHO 
does it for the rest of the world. APA, WHO. Okay, that's what you need to know. Now, the APA meets every 20 years. Every 20 years. And they redo this book, this massive book called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. Okay? And in 1993, they did the DSM-4. Everybody got that? And at the time of the DSM-4, in order to be addictive, you had to demonstrate two phenomena. Two. Tolerance, more and more for less and less, like I explained before. And then finally, this other one called withdrawal, which is what happens when you then abstain. Now, the question is, what is that, that withdrawal? Because that was the hallmark of addiction, was you had to have withdrawal. So caffeine has withdrawal, alcohol has withdrawal, cocaine has withdrawal, okay? And it's a specified stereotyped response. The question is, why? Well, it turns out, when you look at the different dopaminergic, hedonic, addictive substances, and you look at all the withdrawal symptoms, it turns out it's because the effects of the drug are happening elsewhere in the body, not just the brain. Because you're taking it or you're shooting it up. Okay? The whole body gets it, not just the brain. So if you look at caffeine, it's doing stuff to other parts of your brain aside from the nucleus accumbens. If you're looking at alcohol, it's doing other stuff. If you look at nicotine, it's doing other stuff. If you look at heroin, it's doing other, a lot of other stuff. All right? Making you really miserable. So all of those symptoms of withdrawal were systemic symptoms. Now, obviously, behaviors wouldn't have a systemic phenomenon because they're behaviors. They'd all be up here. So, in 2013, when the APA met the next time, because they do it every 20 years, now we have the DSM-5, they were under a lot of pressure from the, um, from, uh, the insurers, and they were under uh, a lot of pressure from, uh, from the administration, because they had to make gambling addictive. So they changed the definition. So this is now the new definition as of 2013. Tolerance, same as before, and either withdrawal or these nine things here in orange, which is called dependence. So it's tolerance and withdrawal or tolerance and dependence. Either one can get you classified as addictive. Now I want you to read through the dependence ones. I'm not going to read them to you. Just read through them. It's like every sugar addict, every cocaine addict, and every Facebook addict too. Read it. Okay? And of course gambling and, you know, shopping and social media and pornography and everything else. All of these. Okay? Tolerance and dependence. They changed the definition. And now, under that rubric, indeed, technology can be addictive. So, the APA listed gambling as a DSM uh, uh, diagnosis. Now, in the, la- in the 2013, they listed internet gaming disorder in the appendix. And they said, no, we're not going to call it addictive yet. It warrants further study. That's what they called it. They had not yet certified technology addiction as a DSM. They have not. That's true. However, the World Health Organization did. Because here are the World Health Organization criteria. And you'll notice, gambling disorder, gaming disorder, other specified disorders due to addictive behaviors, other unspecified disorders, unspecified disorders due to addictive behaviors. So they've let, cut out enough room in their um, uh, rubric for technology to be addictive. So it's addictive in Europe, it's not addictive here because the APA is slow on the uptake. That's it. So, interesting that this happened because just a month ago, the gaming industry went to the WHO and said, you can't call gaming disorder addictive. It's not addictive. Oh, I better move. So, reward and habit. Okay, let's, so, you get a habit. 
Habit is due to reward. So an itch leads to a scratch, which leads to a reward. It may be a negative reward, but it's a reward because what it's doing is it's taking your mind off the stress. That's why there's head picking and nail biting and things like that. But variable reward is what the technology companies do. This here is a slot machine because when the email comes in, you don't know if it's a good email or a bad email. And that anxiety of not knowing is exactly why it's addictive. I'll prove it to you. And I'll prove to you that the internet companies know what they are doing. Who here uses Gmail? How come you use Gmail? It's free. Yeah, right. Okay, good. Thank you. It's free. Okay. Have you ever noticed when you log into your Gmail and it says that there's a message and you click to show the message, there's a second to a second and a half delay before the message shows up. You want me to show you? I'll show you. I'm, sure okay. I'm telling you, it's, it's there. Okay. That second half delay is baked in. That's on purpose. Because that's the dopamine hit. You think Google's just slow? Okay? You try it. Okay? There's a f- second to second and a half delay. That's on purpose. And Tristan Harris, who is the, one of the co-founders of the Center for Humane Technology, was the Google design ethicist who put it there. He's turned on the company and is now trying to fix the problem. So there's a dark consensus about screens and kids. Okay? I am convinced the devil lives in our phones. So the New York Times says. This is what Sean Parker, co-founder of Facebook, said. We need to sort of give you a little dopamine hit every once in a while because someone liked or commented on a photo or a post or whatever. He knows. Okay? They know. They built it in. There's even a company in L.A., that will make your app addictive because they will introduce variable reward. They will gamify it, which then makes it addictive. Okay, called Dopamine Labs. So here we are. This is our model, and the data support this model. Okay, so what's going on? Well, a lot of anxiety, okay? And it, persuasion has now been weaponized. They have actually told you what to think. And why? This thing. This thing made it addictive because it drives your um, dopamine and it also drives your serotonin. When you get a non, if you don't get a like, it puts your serotonin in the sewer and makes you very crazy and makes your cortisol go up, which puts your prefrontal cortex into submission. So this is sort of the, 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 the pièce de résistance, if you will. Here are, on the left, all the happy apps. On the right are all the unhappy apps. Okay? So, on the happy side, we have Calm, Google Calendar, Headspace, Inside Timer, The Weather, MyFitnessPal, Audible, Waze, Amazon Music, Podcast, Kindle, Evernote, Spotify, Weather, and Canvas. Those all have one thing in common. What do they have in common? They're all one-way apps. The information flows from the app to you for your utilization. Now let's look at the unhappy apps. Grindr, Candy Crush Saga, Facebook, WeChat, Candy Crush, Reddit, Tweetbot, Weibo, Tinder, Subway Surf, Two Dots, Instagram, Snapchat, 1010, and Clash Royale. What do they have in common? These are two-way apps. The information goes from the app to you, you to the app, the app then from the app to somebody else. The social media aspect of it. All of these are social media apps because they engage somebody else, but not directly, indirectly. Fact is, the, the big shots down in Silicon Valley, they know. Tim Cook saying, I don't want my nephew on a social network. iPhones and children are a toxic pair, say Apple investors. Zuckerberg's dilemma when Facebook's success is bad for society. So he said he wants to boost the well-being and be the positive force in people's lives. That's what he said. Is it true? Well, turns out there are a lot of depressed people who use Facebook. And Zuckerberg says, well, yeah, they're depressed. That's why they use Facebook is to get social validation that they couldn't get any other way. And that likely is true, partly. You know, I'm not arguing that. 
But the question is, what happens when anyone uses Facebook? It turns out, turns out anyone, whether you're, if you're unhappy, you're unhappier. But if you start out happy, you're unhappier also. Okay? Life satisfaction goes down for everybody. Now, it goes down the most for the people who start out unhappy, but it goes down for everybody. So this concept of being connected is not doing anything for anybody. So have smartphones destroyed a generation? Jean Twenge at UC San Diego certainly seems to think so. She wrote an article. This is Tristan Harris, who is the Google design ethicist who started the Center for Humane Technology, along with a gentleman by the name of Roger McNamee, I'll discuss in a moment. Now, in France, they know this. And they have actually banned cell phone use in schools. Could we do that? Would it make sense? Could we enforce it? And would it make, you know, would it be a good thing? Is it a good thing for kids to be on their cell phones at schools? This is a question for us to answer. You know, you go home with it. It's homework. So what happens if you quit Facebook? The answer is you get happier. Because these studies have been done, okay? Right there, you can see how much happier you are. If you're to the left of the line, you're happier. And in fact, we now have a congressional bill that has been introduced by the Democrats. Uh, actually, I take it back, it's bipartisan, because we have Sass and uh, Collins. Um, that um, uh, It's called Children and Media Research Advancement, or the CAMERA Act, to look at the effects of social media on children. It's just been introduced within the last week. So this is exciting. Uh, you know, we've gotten some play in Congress. So here we are again at our model. I want to just read you one quote and then explain to you what happened in 2016 in a way you haven't heard before. So this is called The Ugly. And it's from Facebook Vice President Boz Bosworth, who's in charge of connectivity, if you will. And he said, this is important, we connect people, period. That's why all the work in growth is justified. All the questionable contact importing practices, all the subtle languages that help people stay searchable by friends. That can be bad if they make it negative. Maybe it costs a life exposing someone to bullies. Maybe someone dies in a terrorist attack coordinated on one of our tools. The ugly truth is that we believe in connecting people so deeply that anything that allows us to connect more people more often is a de facto good. It is the only area where the metrics do tell the true story as far as we are concerned, because that metric also correlates with profit. Let's be very clear about what the goal here is. It's not connecting people. And then we have the 2016 election. So what happened? So we have the who, what, where, how, and why. Who was it? Well, it was these guys here. They started it, Alexander Kogan and Joseph Chancellor from Cambridge University. And they also worked for SCL, which is the parent of Cambridge Analytica. They assessed 270,000 Facebook users and got access to 50 million and then finally 85 million friends data who didn't know they were being accessed. They predicted likes and dislikes in the same way Netflix knows whether or not what movie you want to watch next. Okay? And it's called Singular Value Decomposition and Multi-Step Co-Occurrence. And it can actually predict your personality. 95% black from white, 93 men from women, 88 gay from straight, 85 Democrat from Republican, and 70 to 80 on five personality traits to target. They know who you are, and you've told them. Why does it matter? Well, here's why. Because it's not whether or not something is true. It's whether something you hear you believe is true. So this is from Sam Harris, who's a famous uh, neuroscientist down at UCLA and also philosopher and political commentator, very smart guy. And what he did was he stuck 15 religious zealots and 15 atheists in a scanner and measured their nucleus accumbens when he um, read them messaging that would either conform or divert from their worldview. So when the religious zealots heard religious messaging, they got a dopamine hit. When they heard the opposite, they didn't. When the atheist heard something that was atheistic, they got a dopamine hit. So it didn't matter if it was true or not. It only mattered whether you thought it was true. 
Okay? That is the basis of this fake news and also being hacking your mind. It doesn't matter what it is. It matters whether you believe it. So the question is, how do they do it? Well, I'm going to refer you to this book written by Roger McNamee, who is a Silicon Valley investor who was one of Mark Zuckerberg's original mentors. He was, he was the one who told him not to sell to Yahoo. Okay? So he had cred with uh, Zuckerberg. He just wrote this book called Zuck that came out three weeks ago. I just finished it last night. It's a very important book. Right? How about the where? So this is really important because what you're looking at here is high schooler GED versus college. And then we're looking at the Trump-Clinton county map. And what do you see? You see some overlaps, don't you? Now, this has been known before because they talked about college-educated people voting for Clinton and, you know, high school uh, uh, graduates voting for Trump. That's been, that's been known. The question is, why? That's what this is about. And it has to do with prefrontal cortical inhibition. If your prefrontal cortex works, you are unsusceptible to fake news. You have what you call deliberative decision-making as opposed to what is known as intuitive decision-making. If you have intuitive decision-making, you will be much more likely to fall for fake news than if you are not. And you can see the difference between the prefrontal cortical. This is you know, putting people in, in scanners to, to measure what's going on in the prefrontal cortex. So, Turns out that correlates with college education. Now, the question is, is it that people with a defective prefrontal cortex don't go to college? Or is it that education helps you build your prefrontal cortex so that you can be more deliberative? We don't know the answer to that. Correlation, not causation. This is a very big question. And it's absolutely essential because this is what ultimately adolescent education hinges on. And I can't answer the question for you today other than to say, this is what's going on. So we need to do everything we can to protect our adolescents because they are in the crosshairs. Think about that. And the question is, why does this happen? And that's on this slide. Because it's the dopamine response curve. So, turns out, Dopamine, normally a response curve goes up and then flattens out. You'll notice the dopamine response curve doesn't do that. It's a U-shaped curve. Almost done. There is a, an optimum at the top. Okay? When you're in that place, you are fun and focused and phenomenal. You are the life of the party. If you are to the left of that curve, you are lethargic. You don't even want to get out of bed. Hell about going to a party. Okay? If you are to the right, you are irritable. You are nasty. You are aggressive. You are obnoxious. You might even engage in hate speech. And you are certainly going to go vote against the person that you think is a problem. This is what the hacking did. It basically drove everyone that they targeted to the right to make it more likely that those people would vote and that they would be angry about it because of the dopamine response curve. And the point is, anyone can do it. And because anyone can do it, it will happen again. So, our model, our five things, technology is a tool, but it can be abused and has been. And we have the proof of it. And we know why. Because of your prefrontal cortex basically is now under assault at every level because of these five things. An epiphenomenon to this is, the op is opioid use. Take a look at that county map. It's the same as the map I showed you earlier. Because the people who don't have prefrontal cortical inhibition also can't stay away from opioids for the same reason, because they're addicted. So, 
What is the difference between marketing and propaganda? Because that's what's coming through. That's what fake news is, is propaganda. The answer is marketing uses information to espouse your point of view. Propaganda uses disinformation to espouse your point of view. The difference is the truth. Now, people with a functioning prefrontal cortex can tell when it's propaganda. People without one can't. And the problem is, in America, commercial speech is free speech. Because the Supreme Court said so in a 5-4 to four ruling in 1980. Anyone can say anything in America, including lies to our children. So in summary, last slide. Technology has an upside as an educational tool, but a downside as an interactive entertainment or unfiltered social media. Behavioral addictions are like drug addiction because they downregulate the receptor in the nucleus accumbens. That's the hallmark of any addictive substance or behavior. Reduced inhibition by the prefrontal cortex, which basically unleashes that reward. Tolerance and dependence rather than tolerance and addiction. But because there are no systemic effects, there's no withdrawal. Children are most susceptible because they have the least developed prefrontal cortex. Facebook and so other social media take advantage of this phenomenon called variable reward to drive that distraction, to drive that dopamine, to drive the stress, to make that addictive phenomenon happen. And propaganda drives dopamine and stress, likely responsible for the hacking of people's prefrontal cortices and driving altered behavior. So I want to mention that the Center for Humane Technology is a nonprofit that has been set up. I am an advisor to it, as you can see here. And you can see who's on the board are some pretty heavy hitters in the technology field who recognize the problem. The issue is that right now technology is unregulated. We've never had a space where we allowed things that were addictive not to be regulated. Okay? When the market fails, you have to regulate. So the Center for Human Technology is trying to has developed a ledger of harms. A, we're developing a coder's code of ethics to try to prevent this kind of abuse that has occurred over the last 10 years or so. And ultimately, we are proposing we need an FDA for technology. You wouldn't allow bad food out there, why would you, or bad drugs that would kill people. Why would you allow, allow bad technology? It's a tool. It's like every other tool. It can be used for good or for bad. In the last 10 years, we have seen the bad, and it's time to fix it. With that, I want to thank you all. I'll be happy to answer questions, but I'll be out signing books, and probably the best place to ask the questions is out there, because I can barely talk. Thank you. That was wonderful, Robert. So, thank you very much. Actually, we ran over. The talk was so so fascinating, but we just kept going. Sorry. But I uh, know it's perfectly okay, Professor, right. and he'll be out there signing the book. It's a wonderful book, incidentally, and they're for sale out there, and he can answer your questions individually. So thank you very much. This, this presentation of the Commonwealth Club is now over. Thank you.